Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Happy holidays and welcome to this special Christmas Day edition of the Bill Press Pod. Well, after four years of disarray in the White House, we all look forward to getting some experienced people back in charge, starting, of course, with the president and the vice president. And one of their key advisors will be Susan Rice. You know Susan Rice. She served as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and National Security Advisor in the Obama administration. Now Joe Biden has appointed her the powerful director of the White House Domestic Policy Council, which coordinates the administration's actions on everything from transportation to healthcare to education to energy, you name it. I had a chance to interview Susan upon publication of her new book, Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. We decided to replay that interview for you today, first as a Christmas special, and then also for some insights into how key policy decisions will be made in the Biden White House. Susan's new book, uh, and I gotta tell you, it's an amazing book and a really, really wonderful read for a couple of reasons. One is because it's a great account of United States foreign policy over the last couple of decades um, by someone who was in the room where it happened, uh, a very much of an insider and all the way through certainly the Clinton years, the Bush years, the Obama years, uh, and a lot of new stuff that I learned from it. That's one reason. The other uh, reason I found it so, so um, compelling a read is because it is an amazingly candid look that Susan takes um, at herself, uh, at her parents, at her family, at the people she worked with, even uh, at her courtship and her marriage. For all those reasons, uh, it's great read, a tough, tough love, and we welcome Susan Rice. In the book, you talk about um, several of the successes of President Clinton, Dayton Accords, President Obama, the Paris Accords, the Iran nuclear deal. You're also, you also talk about some of the things that did not go so well and are very honest about some of the things that, that why they didn't and what you learned. Um, quickly, just a couple of them. Let's start with Rwanda, 1994 with President Clinton. You went there, you saw the carnage. How is it that the, not only the United States, the entire world just did not act to stop the genocide? So I write about this experience. I was, my first job in government at age 28 was as a director on the National Security Council staff. That's the, the working level policy expert level, the most junior level on the staff. And my portfolio was the United Nations and peacekeeping. This was before I later worked on Africa, both at the White House and at the State Department. But because Rwanda... Uh, 
housed a UN peacekeeping force, and the peacekeeping mission was one of the big points of failure, uh, arguably in the context of the genocide. And the decisions that the United States took as to how to deal with that peacekeeping mission was relevant to how uh, our lack of engagement unfolded. Um, it was a very formative experience for me. And I write in the book as somebody who really, at that stage in my career, I didn't have a voice in terms of policy making and decision making, um, but I had a front row seat uh, watching this process. And, um, you know, the, I start with Somalia in the book because Somalia is really where the new Clinton administration, you know, first uh, got burnt in global affairs, but in, in, but also in particular in Africa. And the, um, the tragedy of Black Hawk Down in October of 1993, when, as you'll recall, we lost 18 Americans, um, and we saw images of bodies being dragged through the streets of Mogadishu, um, really defined or overshadowed decision-making in the early years of the Clinton administration. So I talk about Somalia and, and what, uh, how that transpired and what lessons I learned from that. Congress, as you mentioned in passing earlier, immediately after Somalia, a Democratic Congress, mandated that the Clinton administration, the President Clinton, withdraw all U.S. forces from Somalia within six months. is a pretty extraordinary Mm -hmm. uh, exercise of congressional authority and rebuke of the executive. And that final withdrawal, which was rather precarious, was completed on March 31st, 1994. Six, seven days later, on April 6th, the airplane carrying the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi were shot down, and that was the start of the genocide. And so, again, I had a front row seat as you know, we wrestled with extracting American diplomatic personnel out of a hot war zone uh, where the killing had already begun and where we then wrestled with decisions about what to do with the United Nations as contingents withdrew from the peacekeeping force. And, you know, do we call it genocide? And what do we do about hate radio and all these series of decisions, which, as I write in the book, you know, we're, we took a series of successive decisions that in the moment seemed right in their individual judgments and added up to a colossal failure. And, but then you ask, well, what, what was the nature of the failure? The failure in my judgment, as I write, was not simply that the United States failed to intervene and that nobody in the international community intervened. The failure was that we never considered the question of whether or not to intervene, or what action the United States might take militarily in the 100 days that really constituted the genocide, or to help other people to intervene. We never had that discussion, that policy debate. And the crazy thing was that because of Somalia, it seemed inconceivable, not just to leaders in the administration, but to Congress, to the editorial boards, nobody was calling the question as to whether or not the United States ought to intervene in that period. Hmm. And so as I look back on that as a policymaker, and even now more so with the benefit of hindsight, 
what I learned from Rwanda above all is that you cannot fail to engage the question. You may decide that the balance of interests and, and whatnot leads you not to intervene, but not to call the question to me was the big uh, failure in Rwanda. And that led me to, some will argue maybe to be overly anal as national security advisor <laughs> about ensuring that when we had U.S. forces in the field or when we were dealing with, you know, these very difficult questions like Syria, you, know, you may not like the decisions we made on Syria or, or Libya or whatever it was, but I, you can be damn sure we spent a whole lot of time wrestling with the very critical questions of what to do and what not to do and why. There's so many... <laughs> we have four pages of notes and not that much time. And we're only in the Clinton administration. I know we're only in the Clinton administration. <laughs> but you did mention Libya. So there's this whole thing of Libya, which led up to Benghazi, when you were, I believe, very unfairly roasted for your appearance on television right after the, what happened in Benghazi. Your mother warned you, <laughs> don't go on the Sunday TV shows. Uh, I guess you wish you'd listen to your mother. <laughs> But what the hell happened? And why was it all on you? Well, first of all, the, the, the meta message of tough love is always listen to your mother. <laughs> and it, not just because of Benghazi. I mean, just the whole, the whole thing. And I, as I've you know, made my kids read this book and... Uh, <laughs> provide their feedback back because it is it is as you mentioned bill it is a really personal book and it's personal not just about me but about all of my family including my kids so it was important to me Absolutely. that they be as now young adults uh willing to allow us or allow me to share it but anyway um you know what happened with benghazi was i was um asked on a friday afternoon if you recall, it was uh, Tuesday, I believe, September 11th, when the attack occurred on our uh, our diplomatic compounds uh, in Benghazi. And the terrorists struck, and it came in the context of ongoing protests and, and assaults on other of our diplomatic facilities throughout mm -hmm. Africa, South Asia, and other parts of the Middle East. Um, on that Friday evening after uh, we, meaning the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, the CIA director, defense uh, secretary, all went to Andrews Air Force Base to receive the, the bodies of the fallen and to do the very uh, painful work of, of trying to, to console the families who are understandably inconsolable, um, I was asked if I would go on the Sunday shows and uh, explain, you know, not only what we knew at the time about what had happened in Benghazi, but what had been happening broadly in, in the region and what this was about. Uh, also to preview the upcoming UN General Assembly session, which was, you know, happening within 10 days time as, and I was at that point, UN ambassador. Um, and frankly, it was not my intention or plan to be going on the five Sunday shows. I was taking my kids 
to the Ohio State football game on Saturday. To They were going to play uh, mm. Berkeley. Mm. It was my first chance to take the kids to a Big Ten football game. Uh, and so I said, you know, well, is there anybody else who's available? What about Secretary Clinton? Blah, blah, blah. And she had been asked and, and declined, and I assume because, you know, she'd had by any stretch of the imagination a week from hell. Um, and I reluctantly agreed as, as someone who wasn't thinking about, you know, my weekend or my plans, but just thinking that you know, this was a tough week for the team. I'd been asked to do something. It wasn't something I'd never done before. And uh, I agreed. But on that same Friday night, as I'm uh, making my way home, I decided to stop by my mother's house. My mother was uh, a brilliant woman, extremely accomplished. Um, but she had recently been through her fourth or fifth cancer surgery and had a post-operative stroke. Um, and so she really wasn't uh, physically well. She was mentally still quite sharp and was recovering physically. And since I was living in New York, I always try to make a, a point of, you know, as soon as I got back into town to, to, to go in and see how she was doing. And so I stopped by the house and, uh, where she's in her kitchen as always with CNN blaring. And, uh, she asked me what my weekend plans are. And I said, well, I'm taking the kids to Ohio state, uh, tomorrow. And then, uh, I'm, I've agreed to go on all five of the Sunday shows. And she said, what? Mm-hmm. I repeated myself and she said, why you? And I said, I, you know, what I've already just said to you. Um, and she said, I smell a rat. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. And I said, what are you talking about, mom? I've done this, you know, many times before. This, this, it'll be fine. And of course it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) And she, you know, first of all, as my mom, she was thinking about me and, you know, would this be something that could go awry for me? I wasn't thinking about myself. Um, And she also, having been around the block so many times with great experience and intuition, just had a sense that, you know, when you go out and you're in the public spotlight in the midst of a crisis and in a hot political environment, remember this is the, the height of the uh, re-election campaign, uh, that it wasn't going to end well. And uh, I didn't listen. <laughs> and she, to her credit, um, never really said, I told you so. She would just <laughs> smile and say, you know. But at the time, you gave what our intelligence said happened, correct? That's right. No, I mean, I didn't make this up. I, I used and, and shared with the American people what was our best current information, and that came directly from the intelligence community. And I had confidence in the information. I wasn't just parroting it. I was reading the intelligence and the president's daily briefing Every day. So on the Saturday before I went to Ohio State, I'd gotten my briefing. I'd seen the materials. What I was given to say on Sunday reflected what was in the intelligence on Saturday. Um, And yet it turned out to be wrong in long story short, one crucial respect. Then there were many iterations of their analysis. But at the end of the day, when everything came out in the wash, the one thing that I said that Sunday that turned out to be inaccurate 
was that there had not been demonstrations outside of our diplomatic compound in Benghazi. But in the context of the campaign and, you know, uh, what I think at that point, looking back, was sort of a harbinger of the kind of politics we're now into intensively. I mean, by the way, Benghazi looks like patty cake compared to today's stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I was accused of being a liar. I was accused of being incompetent. You know, so, Congressman Pete King got up on te television and called for my resignation, and it just snowballed from there. And Susan Collins, who introduced you uh, as National Security Advisor, turned on you. Um, and yeah. I don't know whether she Not called Not to mention my, my, my friend Lindsey Graham. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, and John McCain. And John but McCain. I, John McCain, I, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with him in retrospect. I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, gotten there so with others. Did it cost you the job of Secretary of State? No, not directly. Um, the, I made the decision. Um, well, let me fill in the gaps here. So, it snowballed, and it, you know, for from basically mid September through. The election in November, you know, I was being looped on not just Fox, but CNN, MSNBC, all this, all these places. And my mother, you know, in her fragile state of health was, you know, losing her mind because she couldn't turn off the television and she was obsessed with it. But it was just eating her alive to have to watch her daughter's integrity being impugned and, and my intelligence and all of that. I write in the book also the how it really had very negative um health consequences for our daughter for a period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it just, it snowballed. And so my assumption was that after the election, there wouldn't be anything else to still fight about. So it would, you know, eventually peter out. Well, to my surprise, not only did it not peter out, it kind of got like new legs after the election. In President Obama's first post-election press conference, uh, you know, he just won. Everybody's feeling good. And the one of the first questions he gets was about me and, you know, came from the vantage point of, you know, Senator McCain and Senator Graham have said they'll do everything possible to prevent Susan Rice from becoming secretary of state. And, you know, Obama responded by first of all saying i haven't made any decisions yet but you, if you i have not been nominated it, no not not even <laughs> like not even close to nominated um but if i decide to nominate her i will and then he went into this very angry uncharacteristically angry and robust defense um and yet it just continued and so by uh early december early mid-december i decided thinking both about my family, uh, but thinking, frankly, more than anything about the president's ability to pursue effectively his second-term agenda coming out of the box. We had the fiscal cliff. We had immigration reform and a number of other really important priorities. I, I believed with the democratically controlled Senate, and I think Dick Durbin validated this, I, I probably could have been confirmed. That wasn't the concern, but how long would it take and how much time would it take and at what cost to his agenda and to, to me and my family. Um, and so I talked to him and I talked to family and I decided to withdraw my name from consideration. 
So, I mean, I guess you could say it stemmed from that. It, you know, it wouldn't have been the same discussion barring that. But um, it turned out all right. I'm not complaining. Okay. <laughs> During this holiday season, we salute America's labor unions and especially those unions who are sponsors of the Bill Press Pod. So to our sponsors, the great hardworking men and women of the Laborers Union, the Teamsters, the United Food and Commercial Workers, the Smart Union, the Iron Workers, the American Federation of Teachers, and the Steel Workers, we say thank you. Thank you for fighting for American workers. Thank you for keeping America strong. And thank you for your support of the Bill Press Pod. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So um, we haven't gotten to Libya and Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq, but I want to come to back to the book, a personal question. How about some good stuff? You're pretty hard on yourself. You, you describe yourself in the book, okay? I'm quoting you in the book as uh, hard-charging, hard-headed, brash, but uh, no, bright, smart, but too brash, knowledgeable, but immature. Some of these are things that people said about you and you quoted. Aren't you being a little bit too hard on yourself? And particularly in light of, if you could talk about just as closing up, the challenges that you faced as a woman in your position, as a mother, as an African-American, um, so that's you my, had a lot to deal with. That's my description of my 33-year-old self. Oh. So, and, and I, you know, I tried really hard in this book 
um, to be honest, both with myself and with the reader. I mean, I've had this, I've had an extraordinary set of privileges to serve our country starting at the age of 28 at the White House. And by 32, I was an assistant secretary of state responsible for an entire continent. And I was not only the youngest person to ever have been named a, a regional assistant secretary of state, but as you said, I was, uh, I'm a young, I was a woman, I was a breastfeeding mother. I'd just given birth three months ago to our, three months before to our, uh, our oldest child. Um, and I was an African-American woman in a very predominantly white male uh, field at the time. And, but it was principally my youth and my relative inexperience compared to the people that I served with, which was the real challenge initially. So I'd come, after I did the two years as the director on the UN staff, uh, on, the, on the NSC staff for the UN, I was then named the, the senior director that's running the office at the, at the White House on Africa. And I did that for about uh, two and a half years. And so substantively, I was steeped in the issues. I knew the the the, um, the brief well. I had the relationships um, within the interagency, and I had a close relationship with Secretary of State Albright and President Clinton from having worked with them closely. So I had all of that. What I didn't have was 30 years of serving in the uh, the career foreign service, and I'd never been in an ambassador. And the, these those who were reporting directly to me were 20, 30 years my senior, predominantly white men who had worked their way through the ranks uh, in the State Department. And when I showed up, particularly, you know, with my, you know, my son, where in the State Department, where I brought him in quite deliberately with frequency to breastfeed, they did not know what to make of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I get, I get that. And I had to... You know, I had to persuade them that I was worthy of this leadership role that I was in uh, and that, you know, I was somebody that if they didn't necessarily like in the first instance, instance that ultimately, hopefully they could respect. And that took time and effort. And I made some mistakes along the way. Um, and I write about them in the book. And I write about how I learned and how I was very fortunate to have colleagues and, and, and friends and mentors who were willing to tell me when I was screwing up and help me to course correct. And so, you know, fast forward 20 years later, and, you know, I'm in a, uh, a position of more responsibility and seniority. I, I think I, I don't have a problem with being frank and critical about, you know, what I got right and what I got wrong and how I learned along the way. Um, and, you know, there. If you're kind enough to to read the book, you'll you'll see. You know, they're more than the, the descriptions of myself go beyond that. But I, I, I'll own that. I'm not. You know, I'm not trying to rewrite history. So. Life lessons in tough love, not only for Susan Rice but for uh, everyone else. Susan, thanks so much for being with us. And that's it for today's Christmas podcast with Susan Rice. Thank you so much for listening. We wish you certainly a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday for you and all of your family. And a new year that soon finds us COVID-free and back to life as normal. 
We'll be back next week with a couple more podcasts. In the meantime, stay safe, wear your mask. Happy holidays, and we look forward to seeing you on the next Bill Press Pod.